Today on Writers Get Animated, we talk cartoons that make you cry. And I say make you cry because I don't cry. Oh, really? Barito. <sighs> Stay tuned. Hello and welcome to Writers Get Animated. I'm Loud and Mackenzie Worrell. I'm Chris Leva. Today, as Chris said, we're talking about shows that make you cry. And not just like sad cry, but happy cry. Lots of different kinds of cry because there's a lot of that going on right now. There's a lot of emotions happening in the world. You, you mean in, in general the world? In the animated world. Oh, the world uh, of animation. Sometimes you say society, and I'm thinking you mean society right now, and sometimes you mean society and anim. I just want to make sure where these emotions are taking place. Everywhere. Just every okay, everywhere. Anime everywhere and, and otherwise. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Technically, there are no emotions on the page; just words. Okay. Anyway. True. So let's talk about crying. <laughs> let's. <laughs> let's talk about crying. Let's talk about um, ways that shows make us cry. Or shows that... The way shows manipulate us, really. Mm-hmm. The way shows mm-hmm. manipulate our emotions and force us to cry, whether it be ugly cry or... You know, that little bit of nose running that happens. You know, sometimes it's just you feel a little misty. Mm-hmm. You're able to hold it back, but there's definitely some cry in your face happening. Let's start with a very brief introduction. If you're not a longtime follower of Writers Getting Animated, you might not understand what Burrito is. So, Chris, tell us what is Burrito and why does it make you cry? Burrito is an episode of We Bear Bears um, in which we meet the bears. They go to a burrito place and one of them orders a massive burrito to try to go through this contest and is eating all these burritos, all these burritos until they finally bring him the final burrito and it's a massive bear-sized burrito. Um, And he hugs it. And the moment he hugs this burrito, this warm silver burrito, something happens inside of him and he feels something. And you have no idea what's going on and why he's in love with this burrito and takes it home instead of eats it and lives through this. And then at the end, it's revealed that when he was a, a wee cub, He was stuck in a tree during a terrible storm and there was lightning everywhere. And a firefighter came up and offered him his arm with his, the silver sleeve and the bear reaches out and uh, grabs (laughs) the sleeve. (laughs) I'm going to make it through. He grabs the sleeve and holds on and just, he's holding on to the firefighter's arm Um, just with this 
sense of security and safeness that he now he's safe um and you realize that that's when he's hugging the burrito the first time that warmth of the burrito and the color of the burrito just harkens back to that moment of security and peace and happiness and i cried three times all three times that i watched that episode to show uh i showed it to my wife and then i showed it to you and i cried every time i showed it to somebody new so it hit me really hard i'm i'm talking in my almost kathleen turner voice because you are i can tell you're on the brain because it's it's hard to talk about that episode um and not cry so that's so what while burrito Chris is, is recovering yeah thank you just take it, it it does a number of things it does a number of things uh there's a mystery about it of like why is this bear into this giant burrito uh ultimately it's about a traumatic childhood event and like this kind of Bildungsroman of bears, if you will. I was trying to think of a good pun. Grizdungsroman? Grizzly bear? No. Mm, no, keep going. <laughs> Bildungsersen. No, I meant just keep going with the point. I don't mean keep going. You know what more, more bad puns? <laughs> That's not what the world wants. The world doesn't want more bad Mackenzie portmanteaus fine um it's kind of there's a process revealing about what's going on you're kind of putting the puzzle pieces together and learning about this character and what makes them tick and about their past and you're understanding their crazy quirks in the present so it's uniting those two things over a slow bit a lot of this comes with this concept and I'll try to put this in the show notes if we can find it about what's called the perception shift that happens. It's usually a theater term uh, when you're looking at how a story changes in the mind of the audience and it makes you realize something that was there the whole time, but you missed it because it was really baked into the story in a different way. Um, the most famous one is probably something like The Sixth Sense, where you re the character realizes something about his reality, and then it takes you looking back and realizing all the times that it told you the truth without you realizing what the truth was because you were ignoring what was there. And, and to be clear, The Sixth Sense is not a movie that makes us cry. It's just a perception shift. Right. That's all I'm Nor describing. Nor is it animated. Correct. It's just one of the most obvious perception shifts out there. I believe um, Burrito is a perception shift because you spend the entire episode believing that it's simply an un a bear's unhealthy obsession with food. And that's what you take it as. You take it as this bear is just in love with this piece of food and this burrito is slowly spoiling and smelling and getting worse. And so you think it's a story about that when really it's a story about security and other things. Um, and when you realize what that is, it colors all of his actions throughout that whole episode. So it's a very quick perception shift through there. Um, 
which usually is about a reversal and experiencing one thing that you think the episode's about, but it's really about something completely different. The, and the revelation in the final moments is what shifts that your perception of everything you had seen prior to then. Because I haven't made any sound effects this episode, I feel like I have to make a perception shift sound effect here. Okay, go ahead. There we go. Oh, because you're shifting. Yeah. Okay. Okay, I was trying to... I was trying to it's like we're racing. We're, it's a racing sound of some kind. I also thought about a, using the Inception sound. Yeah, I, Inception... I think Christopher Nolan movies, the perception shift happens. Uh, Memento is told backwards because the perception shift happens at the very beginning of the story. It's the beginning of the story that defines everything, but it's told out of order. So that way you can have that shift at the end. It's also not animated, but there we go. You made the Inception sound, so... Another perception show. It's a spin-off show. Writers get real. <laughs> I don't think I would listen to that. I don't think I would. Um, <laughs> I think I'd record it, but I wouldn't listen to it. <laughs> You'd subscribe and download every episode. <laughs> but I don't know if I would actually listen to those episodes. But I'll subscribe because I'm friends with the people who do it. So um, Being yourself. Being myself. Yes. Being me. Um you have a couple other notes here about the emotion and what happens to um, character and another way that we can get manipulated by storytellers. Well, specifically, uh, I'm thinking of one show as an example here, which we're not fully discussing today, but I've recently finished BoJack Horseman season three. Long-time listeners know I'm a big BoJack Horseman fan. It's got everything I love. Hollywood, I'm sorry, Hollywood anthropomorphic animals, sadness. It's really everything that I want in a show. Uh, and so Bojack Horseman, the whole, I feel, point of the show and the really truly sad episodes are when you want a character to win against all the odds and then they don't, which is what happens in real life, but then they're putting it in a show where you don't expect that to happen. Specifically right. in the current season, they set it up very obviously at the beginning uh, it's like they, they want you to expect them to lose without saying that the character's going to lose because the rival characters are what open up the show and they set up their plot of like, da, 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 it's all going to work out because we're the good guys. And these are clearly like the villain <laughs> archetypal bad characters <laughs> in the show. <laughs> right. And just like they say, in the end, everything works out for them. What a surprise. The good guys fail. <laughs> I'm the real good guys, not the not the rival good guys so it's something it's it's that that mirror up to society that bojack horseman about a aging sitcom 90s star who's also a horse can hold up to society it it is interesting because of the reality of that they bring to it and i think that's what throws you off that it is in such a stylized world but the thing that's not stylized is the emotion and most of the situations they when they are 
in a situation, a character reacts realistically, even if it's really outlandish in terms of setup, the characters react very realistically. Mm-hmm. They, they're totally in character with, with who they are as um, animals. Animal people. <laughs> and as people. So I was as animals and as people. I was getting to that point. I was going to make that point, but you jumped on my point. Point jumper. (laughs) So (laughs) with that, let's um, talk about a show with a perception shift for many people who are fans of the show and watch it. Yes. Um, and for you and I, we heard that it was a perception shift episode and we watched it and it was kind of the barometer. That's what I was looking for. That's the word I wanted. Barometer. For? For, for if it works or not, not knowing the lore of the show. Yes. So and what's the show? Yeah. Uh, the show that Chris and I have never really seen before and we run an animation podcast is, Drummo, please. Um, it, it's happening. Okay, this drum's happening. Somewhere. Adventure Time. Epi- <gasps> I know what you're thinking. We, Adventure Time? We have not discussed Adventure Time yet, nor have we really ever watched Adventure Time. Yes. Um, not, Which is why we haven't discussed it. It's, it's Not out of spite. No, no, not out of spite. Not, not because we don't love John DiMaggio and what he does for character. And not because we're not into fantasy and not because we're not into... Uh, Adventure. Cartoon Network or their work or Rebecca Sugar Time. songs. You know, mm. there's there's no good reason why we haven't watched Adventure Time, except that I'm into a lot of stuff and I don't have time to watch Adventure Time as well. It's like Star Trek. Like, you can't just leap in at season seven. Yeah, you're right. Maybe. Maybe not. So we're looking at episode um, 25 of season four called I Remember You. And we, like you said, Mackenzie, it's a barometer on does a perception shift in a show work if you don't have the emotional connection to the entire backstory of the show. So if you have not lived with these characters for four seasons and 24 episodes uh, or th- I'm sorry, three seasons and 24 episodes. Cause it's season four, episode 25. Does the emotional impact still land? That's the question. Can this perception shift land? And there is a mystery in here. Mm-hmm. So it, it does pack the um, writers get animated, patented, um, emotional litmus test. I don't know what it was that we were listing. Litmus test. That's the word. There's another. <laughs> there's another word that means what we're talking about. So uh, does the perception shift hit it because of um, it does have the childhood trauma. It does have mystery it does have Mm -hmm. you think it's about one thing for the episode and it's really about something else entirely um Mm -hmm. but it's about a character struggling against something and they don't even know why they're doing it 
They don't know why they're doing it. So the Ice King, mm-hmm. right? This kooky, crazy character with the crown. Um, which, the heretofore primary antagonist of Adventure Time. Right. So the antagonist goes, Ice King goes to seek out, and I completely forgot her name. Because with an M. Marceline. Marceline, thank you. Seek out Marceline because he wants her help to write a song. And he figures that he has some song ideas. He goes into his um, memory room and rips out some pages from his journals and scrapbooks and says, hey, I probably have some good lyrics in here because writing a good song is about pain. And I'm sure there's a lot of pain in here somewhere. So it's a little bit funny that he's just barging in and Marceline's just confused as to why he's even there at this point. And you sense that there are things not said about their relationship. And she does say, don't you remember what happened? Or don't you know anything about anything? And they, they end up writing a song um, together about him helping her and losing his mind because he loves this crown and the crown is making him forget things. And will I remember you when all this is over? And Well, having not seen other episodes, I had to look up a lot of the backstory about this show. To understand so, it. So for tell me, us about the it did not pass the litmus test. The backstory of Adventure Time. It's a post-apocalyptic world. And so a lot of this, um, there's in ancient, a thousand years ago, there was a mushroom war implied to be some kind of atomic bomb that goes off. And so the, the former life of the Ice King, he's like this scientist who's survived this mushroom war and he finds this little girl in the street who's Marceline. A vampire. So that's how they meet. Well, I, I don't think she was a vampire, vampire at that time. Is she a vampire Maybe. at that time? I thought time? she was a vampire know. at that time. She had teeth. Fangs specific. She she had teeth, but two of them, I believe, were fangs. Okay. I think she was a little vampire. She might be even older. Okay. I don't know how vampires work. I don't know how anything in this show works. <laughs> um, but it is post-apocalyptic. And my favorite fact about this is the creators didn't decide it was post-apocalyptic until they were doing an episode in the first season called Business Time, and they had a whole bunch of businessmen frozen in blocks of ice. And so they've decided this must mean this show is after some giant apocalypse. Mm. And they just roll with that, and they build everything off of that, and they take this kooky antagonist and make him like a hero of some ancient war who's been absorbed by the power of this thing that he was used to stop the war or something and live forever that's the biggest thing is he's trying to live forever but it's sapping away his brain so he won't be able to remember anything of his life so what is life without your memories or something yeah it i it didn't pass the litmus test for me either in terms of can you come in completely fresh to the world and have it land Um, a lot of things that i read people uh fans of adventure time were talking about how much it made them cry and how important it was and 
I felt like I should be feeling something. <laughs> I had the feeling mm -hmm. that I should be feeling mm -hmm. an emotion. I wasn't feeling the emotion that I felt that I should be feeling. Yes, that's the sentence I meant to say. But <laughs> that is a correct sentence. <laughs> but um, I could see what they were trying to do. And I figured that there was probably so much that I was missing that it wasn't landing for me. I think that's that was going on. Now, the, I could see that the, the other episode that we have the Futurama look at the Fryrish. I wish I could test it, but I've lived with Futurama. I know mm. all of the backstory of Futurama, but I feel like Luck of the Friarish has the ability to pass the litmus test where you may not have to know as much about the world because of the structure of the way the story is told. It does tell a lot of the story of Futurama in a single episode or retells it, I should say. Mm -hmm. But not beat for beat. It tells you enough of what you need to know about what the mm -hmm. world is. And that's not to say that every touching episode of Futurama works that way and retells that and passes a limits test. I'm not going to pretend that's the case. No, like it's another, certainly not. A, a good set episode later is actually in the Revival series, which I stand by in some of them. The um, Hermes and Bender episode, when Bender finds out that he has no backup of who he is so he is mortal in the sense that he will live for thousands of years mm. and that doesn't I, retell the story you don't know why they should be sad that these two people are friends in actuality i thought it was good i i thought you were going for the late philip j fry episode which one's that that's where uh the professor creates a time machine and decides to go up uh, one minute into the future, but they hit the lever and they go forward into the future just unendingly until the end of the world. That's a good one too. Because the, the time feel machine like can that might pass only, the test. Because the time machine can only go forward and then try to go forward enough to get to a point in time where someone has created a backwards time machine so they could go back in time which is amazingly interesting as a concept, <laughs> as a concept. It's interesting to have a rule like that for, uh, to have your story limited in that way. But Luck of the Frerish actually won an Annie Award um, in 2001 for outstanding individual achievement for writing. Uh, so it, it is a really good episode. It is a really good episode. It's one that I return to a lot in terms of structure um, and, and ways that you can tell a story. But what would, what's the story of Luck of the Fryrish? So um, Fry feels bad about his life in the future and is kind of missing home, which rarely happens. And he thinks that none of this would happen if he still had his lucky seven leaf clover. That's right, seven leaves. And so they go to find it and they realize that it is not in his thou there's a thousand year old theme going on today in his thousand year old home in old new york um where he kept it in a breakfast club vinyl soundtrack sleeve um and they discover that it's actually the symbol of a 
Philip J. Fry, who looks exactly like his brother. And they find a statue. It's the first man on Mars. And so Fry's upset because his brother, who always annoyed him as a kid, has stolen his seven-leaf clover and stole his fate of who he should have been a thousand years ago if he didn't come into the future. And he's bitter about being in the future and um, bitter that his brother was the first man on Mars and head of a successful company and a rock band. And eventually, uh, digging him up, they realize that this is not Fry's brother. This is Fry's nephew. His brother has named his son after his long-lost brother who disappeared and they never found. The end. I'm getting a little choked up. Not by your telling, but by remembering it. <laughs> uh, not to say that it wasn't riveting what you just did. Thank you for summarizing it very well. But you're welcome. The we um the way they tell the story is very much like uh, Godfather Part Two. If you've never seen Godfather Part Two, uh, it tells a story in the present while also telling a story in the past that informs on the decisions that the characters are all currently making. So it it's telling both at and intercuts back and forth and back and forth and a shot of one will then take you into the a shot of the other very easily so we start off with fry being born um, reminding the audience that fry's name is philip j fry that his name is not fry that his name is philip j fry and they say it a lot and emphasize it a lot <laughs> since most of the plot has to do with the taking on of a name. And we meet his brother, Yancey, and understand that Yancey doesn't want to be called Yancey. He wants to be named Philip. So immediately we start with this trope of Yancey wants Philip's name right from the get-go. That's what that's about. And then we he grabs the spaceship from this mobile that the, they give to Philip, the you know, baby Philip, he grabs a spaceship, throws it out the window in retaliation for not being able to be named Philip. And as we're watching that toy spaceship fall to the ground, it fades to the planet express ship in the present, i.e. the future, <laughs> as, <laughs> as it says. Because now, for us, the present is actually taking place a thousand years in the future uh, in New New York. So New New York! It's just moments like that. And what they're doing is they're building up your expectation. They, we, we see the relationship between the two brothers of Yancey is always stealing Fry's Thunder. When, when they join uh, breakdancing club and philip uh starts going through it's weird to call him philip but fry comes up with all these dance moves yancy does the same dance moves but give them gives them his own fresh names and you know when they find the clover they start fighting over the seven leaf clover and you just start to realize that okay this clover is central to this relationship and yancy is very jealous of fry and that's, that's what you're building in the past, is this constant fighting 
and jealousy, fighting and jealousy, fighting and jealousy, and showing how lucky this clover is that Fry can do the seemingly the impossible for Fry to do, which is be good at something, be good at anything. Yeah. Basketball, breakdancing, anything. Fry being good at In it. the future, Blurns Ball. That's right. Uh, I really enjoy that it's all about sibling rivalry and the perception shift is that it's about sibling love. That's right. There's that reversal. You think it's totally about one thing, um, but it is that love of the brother. When we see Yancey go in and he's getting married. Philip has disappeared. They have no idea. This is a tragedy of Futurama. They have no idea what happened to him. They have no idea what happened to this person. For all they know, he got hit by a car. He's dead. He's gone. They have no idea. But he's getting married, and he decides to go look at Philip's um, record collection for music for the wedding to clear out the room, and he finds the breakfast club. And there's the clover. And he takes the clover. And then later on, you see the baby and decide, and you see the name that Yancey's going to give him, and you know what he's going to say. And then the that's when we get revealed on Philip J. Fry on the grave site, which is famous for Futurama because they immediately undercut the sentimentality of the moment of this grand gesture of he who was named for his uncle to carry on his spirit. They undercut yeah. that because Bender is currently digging up the body of the nephew <laughs> right behind them and says, I've got and the clover. his masketeer. Right. He's like, I got, I got the clover and his wedding ring. Hands off, woman. I'm taken. You know, he's like playing <laughs> with the wedding ring off this body. And like... It completely undercuts any feeling of uh, saccharine and over-sentimentality. Just like well, that. I think Futurum was never about like the, the corporeal. It's always about the sentiment behind a thing. Right. And they... Justifying they, Bender's actions. I'm an enablist. No, no, no. I, Futurama is true to form whenever there's one thing, they immediately undercut it no matter how substantial that thing is if it's a substantial character moment it will be undercut by the next line if it's a substantial emotional moment it will be undercut by the next line if it's a throwaway joke it'll be undercut by the next line that's a mm -hmm. very big futurama thing so as fry is feeling these things then bender has a final line about what being one skull away from a mouseketeer reunion so it's always based on that. It's always undercutting that emotion. And while there is the tension that's held in is brought in by the final moment, which is Fry looking at his nephew's grave, realizing the love of his brother, while the theme from The Breakfast Club, Don't You Forget About Me, starts playing. There's that tension where it's emotional and ridiculous 
because of what it's saying, but what it represents in all the ways. It's just this wonderfully, um, oh, it's just such a taut tension being held there between the sentimentality of the don't forget about me and oh, this is a song from The Breakfast Club and it's a callback to all this other stuff. It's just, they're rubbing up against each other and it's just so gratifying. So you're laughing while you're crying at it. I will say this is a spoiler for my favorite thing, but my favorite thing is that Breakfast Club song at the end. That Because I didn't see The Breakfast Club until after high school. So for me, that song will always be Futurama song, not The Breakfast Club song. Because <laughs> I never heard that song except in Futurama. I didn't know the joke they were making till I was an adult. I see. So you had a perception shift way late into oh. your life about that song. Yeah. The Breakfast Club ended up like, oh, they're playing that Futurama song. <laughs> Wait a minute. <laughs> <laughs> My God. <laughs> Perception shift. I, I hit some grinding gears in that, that shift there. That's called Arrested Development. On the next episode no. of... Of Red is Get Animated. Um, <laughs> what's really nice about this, the perception shift, there are a lot of companies, Futurama's really good at it, um, Pixar is amazingly strong at perception shifts. Thinking about most recently, Finding Dory is just full mm -hmm. of perception shifts. Um, there's also a lot of convenience in there and dramaturgical things that I have issues with. But mm -hmm. um, on the whole, Finding Dory, I'm not going to do, I'm going to say spoilers. I'm not going to give it away, but th there's a moment at the end where it's just a visual and you realize what's been going on between what Dory's looking for. And I, I, I did tear up quite a lot at that moment. It's a good moment. It's a very Pixar moment. It's, it's a definitively Pixar moment done in silence, except for, well, I can't say silence, but no dialogue. And Thomas Newman shoving his crime music into your head. Just... One thing that we haven't talked about through all of this is uh, the the force of music in all of these mm. to force that emotion. So the Breakfast Club song, um, the the song that Marceline and the Ice King are trying to create at the end. These are musical moments. Um, the song from Jesse from Toy Story Two. Um, I will go sailing no more from Toy Story 1. These song moments that define this emotion and try to get you to feel something and sit in tension with the the visual that you're getting. That's one thing. I think it's about. part of what happens with that, like especially with the Breakfast Club song and like these really big popular songs is you bring your own things to that. And we naturally project emotions onto songs. And so when you use a famous song, you're, the audience is going to bring their own stuff with that. That's true. That's very Thank true. You. 
Unlike the using a song. Unlike the I remember you song from Adventure Time, where it's a new song being crafted in the moment, and you're trying to figure out what are they really saying? What is this really about? Or you have Randy Newman yeah. singing something. Man, there. It was like country Randy Newman. I don't know what that was. That did not sound like Randy Newman. <laughs> <sighs> Something about music just makes you tear up a little bit, though. It's appropriate yelling is what it is. Emotionally appropriate yelling. Okay. Yeah, you can't just like scream when you feel emotional, but you can sing. That's okay. TV taught me that. This isn't animated. And wicked. This, this isn't animated, Mackenzie, but have you watched Crazy Ex-Girlfriend yet? No, I haven't. Okay. Talking about music and emotion and doing things really well. It's not for children. Um, though my son Or ex-girlfriends. No. But it's, it's a very, very... When we're talking about music defining a moment for a character and perception shift for what's going on with a character... They do that very well. Not animated, but very good storytelling and music making. Well, that's my homework for next time. So on, on to homework time. Next time, um, The Little Prince has debuted in the U.S. on August 5th. So at this point... You should have access to it as long as you have Netflix. Um, so you can watch this acclaimed animated film that was making the rounds everywhere except the U.S. And whose distribution rights were mysteriously dropped and then bought by Netflix and then pushed back and pushed back and pushed back and pushed back. So now you too can enjoy this film that everyone loves and will probably be nominated for an Academy Award next year. Netflix is breaking into the Animated Academy Award. I'm calling it right now. I'm not saying they're going to win it. I'm saying they're going to get nominated. Because of their distribution of The Little Prince. Yes. Well, watch The Little Prince. Mm -hmm. We all will. We'll talk about distribution rights, possibly a little bit of art style. I've never read The Little Prince, so I only know vaguely what it's about as a whole. This will be my introduction to the whole concept. It'll be great. I watched the Nickelodeon animated series when I was younger. So we could talk about that. The Nickelodeon too. animated series? From way back. Le Petit Prince? Yeah. Hmm. The more you know. <laughs> As always, thank you to Nigel Catino, our engineer, and thank you to Jacob Reed for our theme drums. Theme drums. Theme drums. Theme drum. Three, three music. If you like us, leave us a review on the iTunes store. Um, we appreciate it. It tells other people that you like this show and that they should also like it. You can also tell us nice things um, or suggestions on Facebook at facebook.com slash WG Animated. Right, just get animated. WG Animated. Slash WG Animated. On Twitter... At that little A with a circle on it, in case you don't know what that is, WG Animated. And on 
www.writersgetanimated.tumblr.com. There's no www before it. It's just writersgetanimated.tumblr.com. You can still put in www, can't you? Why wouldn't you? You don't this have to. This conversation is making me feel a lot of things right now, Mackenzie. The, okay, I, I'm cutting you off. Your emotion, you're at an emotional cutoff. You've already burritoed. You're done. No more. You're don't you think you've had enough, buddy? I feel like I have had enough, to be honest. Wow. So on that wow, note, indeed. good night, Christopher. Good night, Mackenzie. <laughs> good night, everybody. everybody. <laughs> Let's not do that one again. That's weird. Like you're done with good night as a whole? <laughs>